You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him When he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this this event. And we thank you, Father, that you've been pleased to record this event for us that all these years removed, Father, we could look at it and we could see the fulfillment of Scripture. We could see the very your very heart. We could see our Lord and Savior descending from the Mount of Olives down into Jerusalem. Father, we thank you for so many things here that we can see. And Father, we pray that you would be pleased, Lord, to teach us from this passage once again, Father and that you may make application of this passage to our lives. So we look to you, O Father, for these things. In Jesus' precious name, amen and amen. This morning, obviously, we're setting aside our study of Genesis in order to celebrate what the church has traditionally called Palm Sunday. And let me preface this morning's message by saying something, I, I, I could let you in on a, a kind of something that pastors talk about when we come to um, mornings like Palm Sunday and uh, uh, when you come to Christmas time and you come to these, uh, these seasons and there really are only so many texts of scripture, so many passages. And when, you, when you're first getting started, it's not that big of a deal because uh, some of these passages you're preaching on for the first time. Um, I've preached on the triumphal entry many, many, many times. And uh, sometimes on the face of it, you can think to yourself, okay, what in the world am I going to say about Palm Sunday that's new uh, that I haven't said already? Well, um, I'm always amazed that each time I have taken these familiar texts up and I've not found any lack of things to say. I'll tell you that I started out with notes here. I had maybe three or four pages, thought, okay, that's good enough. There are now nine pages of notes here on. uh, There's no lack of things to say uh, about Palm Sunday. I'll I'll try not to take you through the whole load here, okay? (laughs) What I'm trying to say is um, God is very, he's always ready to instruct us in new things even with really familiar texts. Um, And let me say this, when you've studied scripture for a while, you soon discover that uh, one of the things God is up to very often is not really instructing us in new things as much as reminding us of the old things that we already know. How many times does God remind us 
and remind us and remind us and remind us. And there's good reasons for God to do that uh, because we're we're like sheep, aren't we? Um, That means a little bit to some of us. But years ago, uh, there was I, I was leading a Bible study that there was a woman in this Bible study who actually grew up on a farm that raised sheep. And when you said we're all like sheep, I mean, I remember the first time I said it in that context, I I saw such a reaction from her when I said it that like caused me to inquire. I'm like, you seem to get that. And that's when she kind of said, well, you know, I grew up on a farm and we raised sheep. And um, I said, well, then you realize that's not a compliment, don't you? She goes, yeah, I realize that's not a compliment. And I said, well, could you tell the group, you know, um, what would happen if you left sheep alone? And I remember her. I remember her reaction. She's like, oh, goodness. Oh, that wouldn't be a good idea. I said, why not? And she said, well, the first thing they'll do is find harm's way and run straight into it. Well, we're not really that different, are we? We have to be constantly reminded of God's truth or else we are going to run into harm's way, aren't we? We've got to constantly be reminded of the truth of God. And it's for this reason that I don't really fret or hesitate to preach from these texts over and over again because they remind us of that truth. And adding to this, um, the story that we're, we're looking at this morning is actually recorded by all four evangelists. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all give us an account of what we call uh, the triumphal entry and um, or Palm Sunday. That alone actually should alert us that there's, there's a high level of significance to, uh, to this story. So let me, let me use two questions to guide our study this morning. Two really simple questions. First, what is Palm Sunday? We could probably, most of us, probably give an answer to that question. And second, why is it called Palm Sunday? Let's just let those two simple questions uh, steer us uh, through the scriptures, if you will. Uh, now, if we want to take up our first question, what is Palm Sunday? Uh, there's three things that we probably should ask about our text. And there are three things that I'm constantly reminding us of when studying scripture. Three things are important. What are they? <laughs> it's I'm not being I am being a little bit silly, but I'm also being quite serious about that. We run into a lot of problems when we forget that. Um, so let's look at the context of what we read. We began reading at verse uh, 12, but let's back up to verse 9 through 11. If you look there, you read these words, John 12, verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Now, what do we get from these verses? Well, you know, there's excitement in the air. There's excitement in the air. 
uh, it's time for the Passover feast. And if we were the ancient, if we were among these, these ancient Jews who were all headed into Jerusalem to observe the feast, uh, we, we would agree that this, this particular feast is different than all the other ones. And it's different because as we got closer and closer to uh, the city of Jerusalem, we started hearing these stories. Uh, what story we've we been hearing? Well, Jesus had this friend, his name's Lazarus. And Lazarus got really ill, so ill that his sisters called for Jesus and called Jesus to come to his side. But before Jesus got there, Lazarus died and he had been buried and was in the tomb for four days. But Jesus showed up and he ordered the stone of the tomb to be removed. And Jesus called his friend Lazarus and commanded him to come out. And sure enough, Lazarus come walking out of that tomb all uh, in his burial cloth, all bandaged in his burial cloth. And, and furthermore, he's, he's here in the Jerusalem area. Now, put yourself in the place of these pilgrims who are going into Jerusalem. And you're hearing all this stuff. You know, we're quite curious about things like that, aren't we? Wouldn't you, like, want to see this Lazarus character? I mean, I think I would, would you? I mean, let's see this with our own eyes. Let's see this guy that he was dead and he was in the tomb for four days and Jesus just simply said, Lazarus, come out, and he comes walking out. I'd like to see Lazarus, and it'd be maybe we could even see Jesus too. I mean, perhaps we could even see him. So these reports are flying all over Jerusalem, and that brings us to verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Really? I mean, we're hoping to see Lazarus, but you know, we, we might even be able to see Jesus as well. So you see there's this excitement in the air. And the large crowd rushes out of Jerusalem and up the Mount of Olives because we're told that Jesus, he's coming down the Mount of Olives. Well, of course, people are going to gravitate. They're going to, they're going to head up the Mount of, out of Olives. Now, meanwhile, Jesus is descending down the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem, and there's a crowd around him that's coming from Bethany. Uh, and they've also, you know, in a, in a neighboring town uh, where, where Lazarus was raised, I mean, things like that happen. It's going to draw a crowd, and there's a crowd of people up there, and they're around Jesus. And Mark, and, and, in his gospel account, tells us that there was a crowd ahead of Jesus and a crowd behind him. And Jesus is now headed down over the hillside. And at one point, the crowd that comes up from Jerusalem actually converges with the crowd that's coming down from Jerusalem. And then there's this big, massive crowd uh, all around Jesus as they're coming down into town. And out of adoration, we're told that the many of the people took their coats off and they were throwing their coats down on the ground, and it was forming this 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 massive carpet, if you will, uh, that that Jesus was uh, traveling on. And here's where the story starts to become significant. If you look at verse 13, so the crowd took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Jesus, crying out, "Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel." Now, the ancient historian Josephus tells us, if memory serves me correctly, I think he was referring to A.D. 65, which would be about 35 years after this, approximately 30, 35 years after this event. 
that there were about 2.7 million Jews in uh, Jerusalem for the uh, Passover festivities. And that gives us kind of an idea of what size of crowd uh, we're dealing with here. Um, we're, we're talking about a couple of million people. Now, how many of those people come up out of Jerusalem to meet Jesus on the hillside? Who's to say? I mean, there's no way for any of us to know that. But I think we have very good reason to believe that this is one big crowd. It's, 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 uh, it's a magnificent display. Um, and notice what they're doing. We're told that not only are they throwing their cloaks on the ground, they're throwing palm branches down. And there's significance to the palm branches. And this is why we call this Palm Sunday instead of Cloak Sunday. You know, we don't call it Cloak Sunday, even though they threw their coats down. Um, I don't want to I don't want to dismiss the significance of taking, you know, in this in this particular culture, you probably only had one coat um, and it was prized uh, to take it off and throw it on the ground while somebody, you know, travels across it with a donkey is pretty significant. I don't want to take anything away from that, but we don't call it cloak Sunday, do we? We call it Palm Sunday. Why? Because there's significance to these palms. By the time of Jesus' earthly ministry, the palm branch had become uh, practically a a national symbol of victory, of peace, and of joy. And um, these kinds of celebrations commemorated victory over enemies, if you will. Uh, Sometimes when people wanted to acknowledge kingly power towards someone, out would come the palm branches in this similar type of, of demonstration. And that's exactly what's taking place here. The crowds are celebrating victory. Now, the question that is before us now is, well, what victory are they celebrating? What victory? Well, most likely victory from Roman occupation. Um, After all, I mean, here's the logic. We can understand it. If Jesus can raise a, a dead man from the tomb, if he can raise someone from the tomb who's been in there for four days, surely he can lead us and a revolution against the Romans. And that's really what's on the hearts of people. That's really where their heart is, is not only breaking free from the uh, rule of Rome, but um, also seeing their nation return back to the glory days of, of King David. That's really where their heart is. And this is... The fear of the chief priests. I mean, listen, one of the reasons the religious leaders hated Jesus, no doubt, was jealousy. They were jealous of Jesus. There's no question about that. None whatsoever. I mean, Jesus was really stealing their thunder. And certainly envy, jealousy. Pilate, you know, he recognizes that during the trial. You know, he has a bunch of jelly bellies, you know. I mean, he realizes that. But there's also another reason that... um, you know, they they believed that Jesus was going to invoke a revolution that would result in a bloodbath. They really did. I mean, look back with me to chapter 11, verse 48. And, and you can hear what they're, how they're reasoning in verse 48. You know, they're saying, if we let Jesus go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Uh, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. 
So these leaders believed that as soon as the Romans caught wind that a Messiah had showed up, what are they going to do? They're going to march in with their armies. They're going to defeat. Um, they're going to defeat the people of Israel. Then what's, then they're going to take what's left and they're going to scatter them all over the Roman Empire until really there's nothing left. And their solution, ironically, is to kill Jesus. You know, that's their solution to this problem. And back to verse 13, remember what the crowds are shouting. They're shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Now, we hear these words all the time, Hosanna in the highest. We sing songs, say Hosanna in the highest. What exactly does Hosanna mean? Well, Hosanna simply means save us or save, pray, or save us, we pray, uh, is what we're saying when we say Hosanna, and they're they're calling on the Lord to save them now, and they're doing it in a spirit that obviously they believe that the time is right. You know, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Um, they believe the time is right. They believe that Jesus has has come to deliver them from uh, Roman oppression. And if we were ancient Jews, we'd have known all these words. Um, these words come from Psalm 118, which you'll, you'll recognize. We read at the beginning of our of our service. And um, if we if we were the ancient Jews, we would all know these songs because we would have been accustomed to going to these feasts year after year and singing these songs over and over and over again which is another reason why I think we shouldn't hesitate to look at these texts each year over and over again. Um, I, think it, I, I think it embraces you know, my commitment to do that. Um, during the, the festivities, there's a collection of psalms in the, in, the, in the Psalter known as the Hallel Psalms. Has anyone ever heard of the Hallel Psalms or the Egyptian Hallel Psalms? Psalms 113 through 118 are a group of psalms known as the Hallel Psalms or the Egyptian Hallel Psalms. And they were sung during the Passover time. So if we were people of this era and people of this culture, we'd know these songs, you know, and we would probably know many of them off by heart. And if you if you turn back to Psalm 118, um, there are a couple of verses here. I want to I want to show you uh, what's actually happening here. Psalm 118, we start with verse 25. And in verse 25, we're going to see we're going to see that they're quoting these verses. Psalm 118, verse 25 uh, simply says, save us, we pray. Now, let, let me let me speak to that. That's that's the English translators translating the Greek. Well, in, in, in the case of Psalm 118, they're translating the word Hoshiana, Hoshiana which is the Hebrew in, in the Greek text of the New Testament, it's simply Hosanna. Um, and there's something we should understand about that. When the Greek translators bring the, the text into Greek, from Hebrew into Greek, instead of looking for a Greek word that would capture that, they actually, they do bring the Hebrew word into the Greek language. They pronounce it a little bit differently, but it is indeed the Hebrew word that they're bringing in. And there's a reason for that. Because they're trying to they're trying to capture the Hebrewism of it all, if you will. They're bringing the spirit of Psalm one eighteen into this is what they're doing. Because that's what's happening here. 
Uh, and it's important that we understand this. Now, in English, we can translate it, save us, we pray. As I've already said, save us, we pray, O Lord. Verse 25, Psalm 118, verse 25. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, what is the significance of this? Again, context, context, context. Uh, look, uh, the, the context of these words show us that this is a messianic passage. If you look back to verse 22, you see, it, it says the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Verse 23, this is the Lord's doing. I'm in Psalm 118, by the way. Psalm 118, verse 23. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Now, how can we know that this is messianic? Well, in other words, how can we know and be sure that this is meant to apply to the coming Messiah? That's easy. Jesus applies these words to himself. In Matthew 21, verses 42 to 43, you don't need to turn there, but just listen. Jesus says this to his opponents, to his enemies. He says, if you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. It's messianic language here, meaning it speaks of the coming Messiah. And Mark tells us that the crowd understood that they were acknowledging the messianic overtones of this because Mark tells us the crowds were, were also saying, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. So they were also saying that as Jesus is coming down the Mount of Olives with the large crowd around him. They're shouting, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. So again, we see further evidence that the people believed Jesus was coming to restore Israel back to its former glory days under King David. Uh, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty clear. So the crowds are acknowledging Jesus as Messiah. And what's interesting here is Jesus is not stopping them. On the contrary, he's furthering this. If you look back to John chapter 12, if you look at verse 14, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Now, from the other, while you're turning there, from the other gospel accounts, we know that Jesus had sent his disciples into a neighboring town to collect these donkeys. There were two of them. There was a, there was a mother and her colt that were brought to Jesus. And presumably Jesus is sitting on the cult while the mother is going alongside of him. Um, now, what is this all about? If you look at the end of verse 14, you see this little phrase as it is written. Uh, what that simply means is the words of Scripture are being fulfilled. And that takes words of what Scripture? Well, uh, these words here, verse 15, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a colt. Now, some of us will recognize that these are the words that come from the prophecy of Zechariah. And again, that's a messianic prophecy. Uh, it would have been recognized as a messianic prophecy. It spoke of how the coming Messiah would come in or come to his people. And here on this hillside, um, this prophecy is actually unfolding. And... All week, I've prayed this, this prayer over and over again. All week, I've been like, Lord, take me to the hill. And 
on Sunday morning. Take us to the hill. What is going on on the hill? Listen, folks, I don't use this word very often, but I'm going to use it now. It's the word awesome. This would have been awesome to see. Because what is happening is the Messiah has come. And he's coming down the hill. And this ancient prophecy is actually unfolding right before our eyes. And there's a lot of significance to Jesus' choice of animal here, his choice of transportation. In wartime, kings rode war horses. But in times of peace, they rode donkeys. And here Jesus is, riding on a donkey's colt. And the meaning here is that Jesus comes to make peace. Now, this is not exactly the idea everyone has in mind here. I mean, the people wanted a king who would restore Israel back to the days of King David. But this is not what's going to take place. It's not what's going to take place. Something greater will take place, but they're, very, they're going to be very slow in understanding this, just like we're very slow in understanding things. And unfortunately, some people aren't going to get it at all. And that's one of the reasons why uh, the gospel writers record Jesus weeping. You know, at one point, as he's headed down the Mount of Olives, he gets a glimpse of the city of Jerusalem and he looks upon the city and he weeps. It's because he knows that so many people aren't going to get this. They're not going to get it. Now, this brings me to a point of application. One of the lessons that I want to mention this morning is, is this. I mean, sometimes things don't go the way we want them to go, do they? And this can be really hard if your heart is really invested in things going a particular way and it doesn't happen. And there's another application, which is a kind of a close cousin to this one. Some of you are just getting started in life. And um, I want to share this with you now because um, there may come a day where you'll, you'll find this happening. And part of... I can tell you right now, I'm very intentional about this. Um, I'm, I'm doing damage control. I'm trying to prepare you for things you haven't experienced yet because I know that you're probably going to experience them. If you don't experience them, that's going to be great and wonderful. Some of us have experienced this. Uh, some of us may even be in it at the moment. I don't know, but you can reach a point in your life where you can look at your life and you can say, you know, this really isn't the way I wanted it to go. This really isn't what I had in mind. Now, granted, when we come to those kinds of seasons in our lives, there's probably sin all over the place. And there's probably lots of idolatry and, and very... Oftentimes, idolatry and sin is motivating that. But I want to share this with you because this is an intersection where God may take us sometime. And if he does take us to this intersection, listen, folks, 
this is a dangerous intersection. It's an intersection where you might say to yourself, well, I should have done this, or I should have done that, or I should have, I would have, I could have, I might have, if I'd only done this, if I could have done this and changed that. Um, we got to handle that with caution. Uh, without a grasp of this text here, um, you can become angry. You can even become angry with God. Some people do that. They, they think it's God's fault. That they didn't get this or they didn't get that. You can be full of resentment. Bitterness can creep in. Now, someone might be sitting here saying right now, okay, wait a second. I, I, I don't have this. I can't connect the dots here. Uh, that's okay. Let's, let's work on that. What we have here coming down the Mount of Olives, as I've already said, is an awesome portrait of Christ as king. Everybody got that? We think about what is Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is about Jesus coming into Jerusalem as king, bringing peace. It's his first coming. He comes in peace to make peace between God and men. And what, why do we call it Palm Sunday? Because it is truly a victory. The crowds misunderstand it. Everyone's misunderstanding it. Uh, but they're throwing the palm branches down and prophecies being fulfilled here. No one really understands what's going on. People think something's going to happen that they really want to happen. But that isn't what's going to happen. It's actually something much greater that's going to happen. But if you come alongside of somebody when they're all busted up because things haven't turned out the way that they wanted, and you say something to them, well, listen, there's better things coming. Man, don't do that. I mean, it seems like the thing we ought to do. Don't do that. Just keep the yapper shut. That's a better course of action. Trust me. Just come alongside of them. Because when things don't go the way we want them to go, it, it can be very, very painful. But back to this portrait of Christ as king. Jesus wants us to see this. Why can I say he wants us to see this? Because think of the context. Again, context, context, and context. And let's put this event in context with many of the other events that, that, that Jesus did during his earthly ministry. Do you remember that in so many cases, after Jesus performs a miracle or a great work, he tells the recipient of that miracle and that great work, listen, keep a lid on this. Don't tell nobody about this. Of course, they ran around and did, but nevertheless, he tried to keep it piped down. But that's not what he's doing right now, is it? And in fact, if you've read John carefully, you might even say, wait a second, they wanted to make him king once before. And that's correct. Way back in chapter 6, they wanted to make him king because, you know, he's feeding them. They're hungry and he's feeding them. And they're sick and he's healing them. And imagine being in the crowd. You've got your sick. You've, you've got your hungry. You've, you, and here Jesus is and he's providing food and he's providing health. I mean, yes, we're all going to want to make him king, but for the wrong reason. And in that passage, Jesus steps up his 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 message uh, uh, quite significantly, and, and it, it really is a little bit ahead of them in, 
And they all kind of disband, don't they? And it to the point where Jesus even looks at his disciples, how about you guys? You guys ready to leave too? And Peter makes a famous statement. Well, no, Lord, where are we going to go? You have the words of life. So they wanted to make him king once before, but what's significant here is Jesus is not stopping them. He recognizes that he is king of Israel for sure. He recognizes the fact that they're recognizing it and he's doing nothing to stop it. And here's the heart of the matter. Jesus is a king who's on his way to lay his life down. He's a king who is on his way to die in the place of his people. And actually, Jesus is using the excitement that's in the air. He's using all of this to make sure that that execution happens. That's what Jesus is up to. If you look back to me, back with me rather to chapter 11 and verse 57. There you see the words. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So you see there's a bounty on Jesus. He said, listen, if anybody sees Jesus, let us know where he is so we can arrest him. Well, hey, fellas, there he is. <laughs> He's in the center of that big crowd up there. Why don't you go get him? He's right in the middle of the whole thing, isn't he? Um, go get him. I mean, there he is. Uh, he's, he's, he's the one that's on the donkey. Go get him. Well, why don't they arrest him? It's because they don't have control over him. It's because it's not their show. It's not ours either. This is God's show. And he's in perfect control of what's happening here, isn't he? This is God's show. The chief priests, they could have said, hey, they could have, would have, should have. They could have said, hey, we should have nabbed him while he was on the hill. Why didn't we grab him while he was on the hill? Well, because you couldn't. Because you couldn't. Because you can't. We could look back on our lives and think we should have done this. We should have done that. And there are things in our lives that I think we all would like to change. We should have done this. We should have done that. Maybe we were believers back then. Maybe we weren't. Sometimes we become believers. We look back on our former lives and we wish we had lived our lives like we were believers back then. Actually, we had a different nature back then. We had a different nature back then. How much could we have changed those things? Could we have changed some of those things? Probably some of them. Could we have changed all of them? I doubt it. I, I, I doubt it. Or we look back on our lives and we say, well, things haven't turned out the way we wanted them to. And that's certainly the case here. I mean, the people's hearts are in political liberation. And that's simply not what Jesus has planned. That's just not what he has planned. That's not what God's up to. So... Sometimes things don't turn out the way we want them to. Why am I making so much of this? Um, as I've already said, I'm trying to prepare us. These intersections are dangerous. They come into lives, and when they're not handled correctly, it's one of the reasons why uh, fathers leave their families or mothers leave their families when this kind of stuff isn't kept in check. I got married too young. 
Uh, not in love anymore. This doesn't meet my needs. This thing's just, this isn't what I had hoped for. This isn't. Listen, these actions begin with little thoughts, don't they? And sometimes those little thoughts stew in a heart and stew in a mind for many months or even years before they take fruition into action. And I really believe that if I do a lot of this work from behind here, I'm going to be doing a lot less of it back there in the other room. Well, most of us haven't experienced that, anything like that. Some of us have. But I'm trying to circumvent it now. Um, you know, I could give you a shining example from my own life of one of these things. You, you know how many times, I mean, it's, this would probably be a good time to do this. It's, we're going on 10 years now. Do you know how many times people have come up to me and said, okay, Rick, how many do you have come into your church? You know how many times people have done that? Continue to do that? Well, you know what my new answer for that one is? How many times, how many people do I have coming to Tri-State Community Church? You know what my new answer is? I don't have any. In fact, I've been trying to get people to come to Tri-State Community Church for for 10 years, I haven't been able to get anybody to come. But the Lord, He's been pleased to bring a few along. And I'm thankful for every, for every single one of them. That's the new answer. Now, let me give you an example from my own life of the kind of thing that can happen here. How many do you have come into Tri-State Community Church? Okay, they're looking for a number. Why are they looking for the number? I mean, I don't want—I don't want to put everybody into one bin. But why do they want this number for me? In some cases, they're assessing me to see, okay, what kind of significance is there to this? It's almost like asking me how much I make. How much money do you make a year? You know, it'd be almost the same thing. Not in all cases. But the whole idea is the more people you have coming to your church, the more significant you are. And the less people you have coming to your church, the less significant you are. And if this criteria is accurate, well, then so be it. We live and breathe in a culture that pays a high premium to success. And it has its own way of measuring success. And it connects a dangerous dot between success and identity. And we all live and breathe in that culture. And if we are not careful, we can be brought to a place where this can become crushing and it can really it can really become a train wreck in your life let's go back out on the hill and let's ask Jesus what are you doing shouldn't you be on a war horse you know that I read this week one scholar this week pointed out that you know the donkeys over in, in the Middle East they're shorter than the ones that we typically raise over here you know like 
Like, you know, you can ride around, you'll see a donkey, and you can think, okay, that's what Jesus rode into Jerusalem. But I, I guess, I don't know this, I'm not a, a, an expert on donkeys, but they're taller over here. And it's very likely that the donkey that Jesus is riding isn't even tall enough that, like, his legs can hang all the way down. He probably had to hold his legs up. It was actually probably kind of uncomfortable to ride. He actually had to hold his... I can't get that... Ever since I read it, I can't get that out of my head. I'm, Lord, take me up on the hill. What's, what's on the hill? I, I think I see Jesus holding his legs up because they would be dragging on the ground. That's... C- come on, we're not going to be able to make much of a movie out of that. We need Jesus on a white stallion coming down off that hill, you know, with one arm up in the air, you know. That's what we need. That's the road to success. No, it's not. The palm branches are falling down. The cloaks, they're, they're, they're landing on the cloaks and, and Jesus' feet are probably dragging on the cloaks. That's the road to success. It can be summarized with one word. Faithfulness. If we want to ask ourselves if we've been successful we ask ourselves one question have we been faithful that's the question because really all of us want to hear someday well done good and what faithful servant now the painful thing about that is as soon as you start asking yourself the question of, have I been faithful, what happens? We can say, yeah, in some instances, but unfortunately, none of us can get 100% on this one, can we? That's why when we're going through this, we need to go back up on the hill. I really want the Lord to take us up on the hill here. Because the faithfulness that we need to get into heaven is coming down the hill. And it's 100%. Amen. It's not our faithfulness. But when this faithfulness has is, is, is captured your heart, I mean, when it has captured your heart, you can't hardly speak about it without tearing up, can you? He was faithful in our place so that his faithfulness could be credited to us so that God could bring us into his heaven with all of the crap that we've done. He could bring us into heaven. That's the glory of the gospel, isn't it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, with such good news before us, Father, what do we say in response, Father? This is where I find it hardest to speak is in giving you thanks, Father, for the great things that you have done. Father, the the many junctions that we come to in life, some of which are very painful and some of which, Father, are quite confusing. And one of the intersections that we speak of this morning, Lord, such a dangerous intersection. 
where we can look back on our lives and we can be enamored with this, the criteria that the world places for success and we can be, we can look back and we can just see, think or imagine our lives are not shaping up or our lives just haven't added up to what we think our lives should have added up to, Father. And Lord, we recognize that there's oftentimes a lot of idolatry in that. But Father, we thank you that, Lord, sometimes you take us to these these points in our lives so that you can reveal that idolatry, so that you can reveal that sin, that, Father, you may bring healing to us for it. But as you take us up on the hill, Father, we see the very faithfulness that we need. And we see that this is the road to success. Faithfulness is the road to victory. And there we see our loving Savior who is faithful. And there he is with that perfect faithfulness. He's not on a war horse. He's on a donkey, probably holding his legs up. What a wonderful picture, Father. Lord, we pray that you would take that picture and brand our hearts with it, Father, that you would protect us, watch over us, and, Father, see us uh, through to the end. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.